Hello, I'm Michael. I'm a so-so improv artist. I'm an entrepreneur, small business owner, pawn shop owner, a TV host, and your host for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It is a Dweebs Global production where we give free resume help, uh, mental health assistance, you name it. Uh, we have mentors around the world. They're completely free. It is completely confidential. So please go to dweebsglobal.org. I'm here today with Peter Spector. So I know Peter from conventions from the pawn world, uh, but I had no idea of his diversity until we sat down over breakfast, I guess, the other morning. Uh, yeah. Not the other morning, uh, like three weeks ago. So at one of the conventions we were at. So out of college, Peter became an actor. He was in more than 60 TV commercials, hundreds of radio spots, over 10,000 hours in TV and film. He hosted everything from early, from early edition to introducing the Sega Genesis at CES to a golf editorial for Playboy and so much more. You would never guess a second scene because it's completely different. Uh, he is also a well-respected and very successful gold refiner for over the last 21 years. If you don't know what one is, then we will definitely get into that later in the podcast. But I'm always really into uh, uh, the acting stuff. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to attack you there first. And then, we'll, and then we'll delve into gold refining. So you got into acting right after college. Is that something you wanted to do? Is that something you always... Uh... I... Uh... I was in school. I didn't love school. Um, I just, uh, I, my father was an attorney and I was originally slated just to go to law school. And uh, it just wasn't for me. I met a guy uh, who became a really good friend of mine for a lot of years. And uh, he was from uh, Carson City, Nevada. And um, we got to talking one day and I said, uh, you know what, I'm going to come out there during the summer after school and let's... Um, uh, let's take a drive out to LA and just uh, let's become actors. <laughs> so I hadn't acted in high school. I hadn't, um, I had always kind of dreamt of it, but I hadn't really ever done it. So um, we drove out through the Mojave Desert and um, went to LA, stayed at the uh, Mondri, um, not the Mondrian, the, uh, the Doofy Hotel. And the reason how I found that hotel was it was in West Hollywood the manager of that hotel was from Milwaukee originally, which is where I'm from. And uh, <clears throat> we stayed there under Kenny G's uh, band rate, which was like 150 bucks a night or something. It's going back a long time. And um, we stayed there for about a month. And uh, I got into some extra work there and met some people. I was on Wired with uh, uh, Michael Chiklis and... Um, uh, I was on a TV movie with uh, Melissa Gilbert and Woody Harrelson, and uh, Melissa Gilbert, actually, someone said, uh, she thinks you're kind of cute. Uh, she likes that Rob Lowe type. I'm like, oh, jeez, I wish. But I um, went back to um, Milwaukee after the trip and um, started uh, trying to get an agent there, and it was tough. It was tough, um, but I did. I, I just pounded and pounded and pounded them until they finally took me on. So um, started doing some extra work on TV commercials, um, got into a play called Arsenic and Old Lace. And uh, then from, how did you get, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you here, but how'd you, no, get okay. agent, how'd you get an agent with almost no work? With no uh, it was hard. It, yeah. it, it was hard, as you know. And, and it was, um, it's probably, as the years went on, it was probably harder at that point. But it was a small agency in Milwaukee, and um, called Jennifer's Talent at the time. 
and they um i just they, they didn't want me and it took me about a year to um to kind of say hey uh, i can do this and um were you, so doing, were you doing work at the time were you no i was uh, i was selling electronics i was going to uw at the time um uw milwaukee it just didn't um i i just I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to act. And once they signed me mm-hmm. and gave me a shot, um, they saw that I really could book some talent. And they were calling me and saying, hey, you got an audition for this. You got an audition for that. You got a booking up in Madison. You got a booking in Chicago. And um, it started to kind of fly and started to kind of just move. And I was a pretty good marketer, too. So um, I just kind of... I, I came up with this uh, thing called a coffee mug called the versatile mug. And it was the versatile mug, Peter B. Spector. And that it was a coffee mug, but I, but it was my mug that was versatile. So I was playing the young teen and up until I was like 20 and almost 30 years old, I looked like I was 17 years old. So um, the youth really was working for me. Yeah. It's still amazing that you got them to sign you. Uh, without yeah. any prior work, you had really no education in it. It was just no, you- no. But I did. Um, I was driving to Chicago, which was about well, I was an hour and a half drive to where I was going to to Jane Brody's School of Acting, and um, I would drive twice a week back and forth, and um, and I was taking uh, audition classes and uh, workshops, and um, I really was just trying to get out there and and everything I could possibly do, and I did that my whole career. Um, I was always, uh, one day I would be an extra on a Miller Lite commercial. The next, the next day or two days later, I was on, uh, as a principal for early edition with Kyle Chandler and, um, and the other guy, uh, Fisher Stevens. So whatever it took to get in front of the camera. And one day I was doing an industrial next day. I was doing a print ad. I did, um, uh, girl talk, girl talk dateline. I was doing that thing in Playboy. And so you, you, you know, I mean, you just always try and get, um, get your name out there and get your face out there. So it took a lot of years, but, um, but I was one of the top 5% of all working actors in Chicago. Wow. That's unbelievable mm-hmm. to be, to be young and have that much energy and motivated. You, you still have that. Yeah. Energy? You still have and it. I, it just doesn't go at the same speed, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I mean, that's, it's insane how you did that. I mean, you must have really put the grind, put the grind down and you must have had some talent in order to. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that when I did Arsenal Lace, one of the directors on it said, um, Hey, we're doing Biloxi blues at Shorewood players. I'd love you to audition. And I said, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Audition. So I auditioned and I went in for the role of uh, Epstein, which was, you know, the, the counterpart, the, the secondary lead. And they said, no, we want you for Eugene. And I was, I flipped through the book and I'm like, oh my God. I mean, there must've been 10, 11, 12, two page monologues, you know, one after another. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. She's like, you can do it. And uh, Cindy Braggon has passed away now many, many years, but um uh, I did it. And I remember one of the Sunday matinees where I was in my final monologue and it was a great play. And I, I mean, we shaved our heads and we had great publicity for it. And um, I, I really, really took took it. I mean, I really became Eugene and I, at least I thought I did. And the Sunday matinee that we did was the final matinee. 
And uh, I remember hearing people in my final monologue going from laughter to hearing some people weeping, literally crying. And I knew how powerful that could be. And I knew that I had that in me. You know what I mean? I mean, you could feel, you can hear it subliminally, but uh, as an actor, but you, you're not focused on it, but I could hear it. And um, I knew how powerful that medium was. And I, I knew how powerful acting was. That you could take someone from those emotions, from laughter to literally crying uh, with, with just some spoken words. And um, that's what I've always loved about movies too. Wow. Well, yeah, I can't imagine the feeling. You know, when I get up there and I do like my improv or, or <laughs> speaking, I love to hear the laughs, but I'd imagine it's a whole nother level when you can really bring out more yeah, and, and the laughter is terrific too. I mean, I I was looking through some some old tapes the other day, and um, that I have digit you know digitally uh, digitized, and um, there was a, a scene where we were going in to say uh, to see the uh, prostitute Rowena, and I said um, I said uh, we were having a conversation. He said, "You don't even know how many uh, uh, ways there are to you know basically have sex." And uh, I said, yeah, there, there's 52 ways. And he goes, how do you know that? I said, I saw a dirty deck of cards once. <laughs> and, you know, the whole audience just, just <laughs> belted out in laughter. Um, those were moments, you know, that were just, they were timing. And it was, I, I just always kind of, um, I had that timing. I was a sticky little kid. You know, I was a little wiseacre when I was a, a kid in walking. And everybody knew me as a little wise ass, you know. Still here. I had I had timing. It's still there. You could still Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it. <laughs> um, I, I do have to ask about the Playboy, the Playboy uh, golf tournament. What what was that like? <laughs> it was a uh, it was a, actually an editorial and um, I forget the year I think it was maybe 1995 97 somewhere in there. That was the heyday. Yes. Yeah. Like the heyday of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I have the issue over here. I'd step away for a minute and get grab it. But uh, um, the uh, I was asked to do a uh, a golf editorial where they just lined me up with all these different uh, gadgets. And um, Mark Hauser shot it. And I'd always wanted to shoot with Mark Hauser. He was a terrific, terrific photographer. There was probably about five or six photographers, Bill Tucker, uh, Jean, um, uh, I forget her name offhand, but uh, there was a bunch of photographers that were really, really good. And um, they were the tops. I mean, these were the people that were shooting Michael Jordan and uh, Woody Harrell, uh, Woody uh, Allen and Tom Hanks and you name it, these people were shooting the biggest of the biggest stars and celebrities at that time when they were really considered celebrities. So um, it, it was a, a really honor. It was an honor to, to shoot with them and uh, ended up in, as a beautiful black and white photo in the, uh, with an editorial on these golf gadgets. So that uh, was, you know, I was in Playboy, but I had done a lot of other print ads that it ended up in, uh, Entertainment Weekly and Good Housekeeping and uh, GQ. And so th there were other ads for other uh, products that uh, that I had done that I was lucky enough to, to be a part of. I got you. You're going to have to send me some, some, some of the pictures from your early days. <laughs> I will. Yeah. In yeah. fact, one of the agents, the, the agent who uh, took Cindy Crawford on, uh, who, who discovered her literally in Wheaton, Illinois, um, told me not to grow my hair out. She said, you'll never work a day. 
and um, and I grew my hair out, and I I never stopped working. And she apologized to me years later, and I still keep in touch with her uh, through Facebook. But uh, she told me not to grow my hair out. And at that time, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Rob Morrow they were they were up and coming like big kind of names, and people wanted to to have that kind of a look. So when they wanted a Rob Morrow look, they would call me in, and I had the hair, and I had the kind of the young. Uh, uh, attorney, young accountant, young husband. So when Love's Diapers, we shot a Love's Diaper commercial, I was the young husband and uh, they wanted the, the young Rob Morrow kind of look. Gotcha. And um, so you, you find a niche and you fill it. And uh, thankfully there was a, a, a niche for many years. Right. You were really, I mean, it's, you were really there at the height, a lot of those, of, of the beginning of those careers like Robert Downey Jr. But there was like, there's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of other things going on. You seem like a very clean, healthy guy. How did you avoid that? Or was there temptation that you had to pull yourself out of? And no, there really wasn't, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, it's not like I've never, uh, you know, <laughs> experimented. <laughs> but um, I, my, my thing was, is that I just wanted to wake up the next day and go to work and, and, uh, and hustle to audition and work. And I was really driven. And even when I was acting, I was bartending, I was catering on the weekends. And I was for many, many years, I was making a, a lot of money, I was making a good living. Uh, and I had insurance and everything was great. I mean, my daughter was born uh, six and a half weeks early. And I had um, obviously made enough, well, not obviously, but made enough money that year to qualify for insurance. And at that time, SAG insurance was 100% covered. So she spent 28 days in the neo-NIC and it was like a 90 some odd thousand dollar bill. You know, it was going back 23 years ago. And uh, I think it cost me $800 in total for the, the entire thing. So um, I just, I, I always wanted to work and I didn't want to sit back. And a good friend of mine uh, who uh, founded Skinny Pop, you know, the, the popcorn. He used to call me. We were really tight as tight could be when we were in our 20s. And he'd say, Spec, let's go uh, grab an acorn burger on Oak Street. And I'm like, dude, I got to work or I have an audition. He's like, ah, forget about it. He didn't care because he didn't have to, you know, he had his uh, father's money and whatever. So um, right. I uh, I wanted to work and I wanted to audition and I wanted to uh, to be a part of anything that, that would help my career and that's you know uh and it was hard to give it up it was hard to give it up when i when i gave it up in 2000. yeah well it's uh, it's, uh it's impressive that you did that i know that i probably could have done twice as much as i did if it wasn't for the temptations and the other yeah yeah, yeah I never, you know, I went out, but most of my friends were starting to go out at 10, 11 o'clock at night. And by that time I was tired. I didn't want to go out and I didn't want, you know, I did go out one night and uh, ended up getting socked in the face uh, by some guy. And that was the, the day after that, I ended up meeting my wife where she was working and a commercial set of commercials that I was supposed to, to film uh, ended up being postponed, thankfully, because uh, I had a nice shiner in my eye. Right. Uh, but I, I got him back. It was like a Rocky uh, Apollo punch. So, uh, <laughs> did, did your wife feel bad for you? Is that how you, you picked her up? It was. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe she just thought, like, what am I getting myself into by dating this guy? <laughs> <laughs> were you? Were you? Was your uh, your your were you a smart ass to him? Like what, what caused you to get sucked? <laughs> he, I was dating a girl at the time and she, he was kind of hitting on her and she didn't want him to hit on her obviously. And, uh, I walked up to him and I said, uh, Hey, uh, 
I'm an undercover cop. Back off. And he socked me. Spirit <laughs> <laughs> in the eye. I didn't believe you. Huh? It was. <laughs> <laughs> Your acting didn't come no, out. And I got either. thrown out of the uh, the club, too. <laughs> I don't know if that's funny. <laughs> yeah, right. So I know you, I just have to bring this up, but you did, you don't know Jack, the second uh -huh. volume CD. I like, I lived on that game for a good period of time. So when, when I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, you were, you were yeah. part of my life there for a good couple that's months. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I was, um, you know, they had a uh, funny story about that. Um, Jill and I were went to a Barnes and Noble at Old Orchard shopping mall in, in uh, Skokie, Illinois. And she went off to the book side. I went off to the, they used to have this thing called software, et cetera. And uh, I think that's what it was called. Yeah. And so I went off and I was the only one in there. There was no employee, nothing, no, no other. It was like the, the movie Big, where I walked up to that machine and there was literally a computer on a table playing, hey, how you doing? Welcome to the show. My name's, you know, Nate and blah, blah, blah. And you don't know Jack. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. And I told her, I said, you got to see this thing. It's so cool. And I walked her over and um, she was like, yeah, okay, let's go. And um, the following day, I got a call from my agent, my voice agent at Voices Unlimited. She said, um, you've got an audition for something called, I don't know, you don't know Jack or something. It's a blind audition. Go, you've got a 3.30 appointment at, uh, audition at, you know, tomorrow at, at Jelly Vision. So I go to the audition and I was like, wow, this is, I mean, literally I saw the game. I had never, I didn't know what it was. I knew nothing about it. And I was being asked to audition for it. So I auditioned, we, we auditioned in front of a, a, a screen, so they didn't want to see your face, they just wanted to hear your voice. So I was like, hey, how you doing? Welcome to the show, my name's Buzz. You can call me Buzz. And um, I got a call back and um, ended up uh, winning the role. And um, they had were holding auditions in Chicago, New York, LA, literally almost all over the country. Wow. And, um, so um, I beat out some pretty good names uh, that were really big voiceover guys here and um, started going to work. And after they negotiated everything and I was working in that booth from like eight in the morning until sometimes five, six, seven, eight o'clock at night for three months. I went there every day. That was my job. And um, and one night I was there from about doing edits from about 8 p.m through about maybe three or four in the morning, uh, just doing edits and um, just going over questions and redoing questions and thinking of things. And they just let me be and let me do my thing, um, which was good and bad. Cause I, I would have needed, I would have liked to have had some uh, direction at some point, someone to say, Hey, why don't you try this? Or, but they were just like, nah, just do it. And so um, it worked for you just for people that don't it, know. It did. This was like an early, this was a video game, a computer game back in the 90s. Yeah, 1997 it came out. It was yeah, a video game. It had a really smart ass uh, host that would make yeah. trivia or would tell you the trivia or um, uh, it was a great game. We I played it nonstop with my girlfriend at the time. It was, it was yeah. literally. One of my neighbors in, in Chicago, when he found out that I was, you know, that I was the host, brought me over when his friends were over there and they were playing. They were like, ah, oh, you, you know, basically like you look taller on, uh, on, uh, on the video game, <laughs> even though you never see me. Uh, it's not like I'm the tallest of people, as you know. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so anyways, I got the game and uh, uh, they actually, when they hired me, they thought I was a 17 year old surfer dude. And uh, I wasn't even 
you know, I was 28 years old, 27 years old, whatever it was. So um, uh, it was a, a it was a cool experience, and I, and I was grateful for it. So it's it sounds like you loved being an actor. Uh, what was the reason you stopped? I I did love I I did love most things about it. The the addiction, getting back to what you were asking before about you know drugs and, and alcohol and all the kind of great things that kind of go along with, you know, or things that you think about go along with um, being in that industry. The drug for me was always getting the work and getting the audition. That was my drug. That was what kept me going. And um, in 2000, I had a lot of stuff on the air, television and radio, and, um, and I was working and everything was good. And I had a baby and um, the strike came along, SAG-AFTRA striked. And um, so I wasn't gonna break the line and I stayed true to my, my, uh, my organization. And so I started selling uh, phone service and I called on uh, the refiner that I used to work for. And uh, he said, I don't need your service, but I actually like the way that you sell. Would you ever come work for me? So I said, no. He said no. I kept pursuing him. He kept pursuing me. And after a couple months, uh, my money was dwindling hard. And um, and I didn't want to bartend and be in a position of having nothing at 50. I just turned 54, you know, five days ago, four days ago. And um, I didn't want to be at this age having nothing to show for it and not having had kind of the life I've lived over the past 20 some odd years. So, um I had to make a decision for my family and I, and I did. And, and, uh, and it was hard and I still took some voiceover gigs. I still took some industrial work, which is training videos uh, for McDonald's and for Walgreens, for Kohl's department stores. Um, if they called and they said, Hey, we're looking, you know, is Peter Specter available. I would say, you know, see if I was available. And one time we shot on, uh, on, I think it was Christmas Eve up in Madison. And um, so I drove up there. I was still living in, in, uh, in Chicago at the time. Well, how scary! How, how scary to to change careers at that. Point. Yeah, especially at you know thirty, um, whatever it was, thirty years old, thirty-two years old, or thirty-three, and um, yeah, thirty-three I would have been. So yeah, it, it was tough, but I but I I did it for my family. I did it for my girls, and um, sometimes you make that uh, sacrifice. And you know what? I was I, I wasn't single. I, I didn't want to be selfish in my life. And I wanted to uh, to have things, and and not just things to have things. Uh, I just wanted to have a life. I didn't want to live that life where I was driving, going out to LA to audition for sitcoms and coming back and having to wait tables. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't discount it. It just wasn't what I wanted for myself. I think as we all get older and we have kids, it's a security you want. You don't want to have to yeah. worry about where your kids, how your kids are going to go to college, how you're, you know, what, what how, you, how you're going to pay the, you know, own the house and pay the mortgage and, you know, you that's correct. Some more cushion. Yeah. I think we, a lot of us go through that and buckle down, get a little more serious. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, um, look, it, it, it's, some people can do it. I have many friends who, um, have made it after many, many years of struggling and, and, uh, um, they've gotten TV shows, they've gotten movies, and some guys had the life, and now uh, who knows where they are? I don't know. I don't even never seen them, and they can't. They couldn't have made that much money that they're just, uh, you know, living off uh, residuals or whatever. 
but uh, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a tough it's a tough life, and uh, especially now, you know. And God, I could not have imagined uh, having been an actor full time, having relied on that through COVID, when everything shut down. Right. Right. I, yeah. I, so many. Businesses. I mean, you, you couldn't even get a job in a restaurant at that point. No, <laughs> that is so, that is so true. So, so then you got into gold refining. So that was something you had done a little bit of. It sounded like you worked for somebody for a little while beforehand or no. I had never, um, I didn't know. The only thing I knew about gold was that I had bought uh, a girlfriend of mine for since we grew up and our grandmas grew up together in Milwaukee. Her father owned a pawn shop and, um, uh, I bought uh, chains from them, and uh, you know, when I was uh, 16, 17 years old, you know, I was walking around with a big uh, herringbone, like everyone had in, in the 80s. And you, I'm sure you had, uh, you know, I, was, I, did not, I, did not, I think I was, I think I was a tad younger where I did not. <laughs> three years, three years earlier, I probably would have. Yeah. Um, so how'd you but, even, how'd you even think of? getting into gold refining. How was that even on? I didn't. Uh, it was a job. It was a sales job, literally. Okay. Um, and I thought it was cool. Um, and it took me a while to kind of come to terms that I was leaving acting and that I was going to have an actual career, an actual job. Um, and we gave it three months when I first started. And I was doing a great job. And I really liked it. And I thought it was cool. It's really, you're working with the same metals. You're working with gold, silver, platinum, palladium, but the variables change. So it could be dental, it could be from a crematory, which sounds disgusting, and it is, but um, you're working with bullion, you're working with manufacturing jewelers, you're working with pawnbrokers, you're working with scrap, you're working with gold scrap with diamonds. Um, so there were all these different things. And then there was all the stuff that would come in that wasn't metal. So, um, you know, that, um, like I, I, like this chain, I don't know if I'm holding it up for the camera, but uh, there's a, a chain that a client of mine in Iowa bought. Um, it's marked 18 karat Italy and it's stainless. Um, and uh, he bought it. And I think it was a really expensive mistake, uh, probably like a thousand to $1,500 that he paid for it, thinking that it was a $3,000 chain. And um, most of my clients, a lot of my clients have done it. Uh, there was years ago, there were Rolex bands uh, they were going around the big necklaces. Well, Rolex doesn't make necklaces. So, but a, a lot of people bought them. They do. So you're telling me if it's stamped 18 karat, it doesn't mean it's actually 18 karat. <laughs> <That's laughs> right. People can stamp fake stuff. So we get, yeah. we get in the store, my, my shop all the time, people will come in and they'll be like, yeah, I just helped this guy over at the gas station. He needed some money, but you know, he sold me his gold chain really cheap just because he needed the cash now. So I'm coming to you to sell it to you. And it's like right. really fake stuff. And they were just it's brass. Yeah, totally taken yeah. advantage of. And is there anything? Yeah. Is there anything that Joe Schmo can do to tell if something is real without uh, tools that we have at our disposal? That's a great question. So, I think the average person, um, really, it it comes down to senses. Um, does it look like gold? Does it have the weight or feel of gold? Um, is it magnetic? Um, real gold should not be magnetic. Um, the clasp will because it'll have some iron in it typically, you know, to keep it uh, more firm. But a really a, a 14 karat chain, let's say yellow gold, should not be magnetic. It should not pull to a magnet. Um, there are acid tests. There are 
ways that uh, there are XRF or X-rays and things like that. But the average person looking at it, um, A, it should not be magnetic, and two, it should always have the feel of, of some weight. Right. Um, platinum versus silver, platinum versus stainless, platinum versus uh, lead will have a different weight and a density to it. Um, and those are things that you kind of learn over time. And unfortunately, people make mistakes. But um, if you're not sure, I always say don't buy it. I'm, I, you know, I've been in the business for 25 years and I still get taken sometimes and I have the tools to tell whether or not it's fake or not. And it's, I still, I still will buy the occasional fake. fake yeah. yeah the other thing is too, is that for the average person walking around a street in Chicago or Nashville or one of the busy Austin, Texas, and if someone approaches you with a story, just walk away. Don't buy it. Just if you want to give them $10 or $20, give them some money. But don't don't take the gold. Don't give them any more than that. It, a story is a story. You know, I used to tell my my uh, clients all the time, and I have clients in almost every state in the United States, is that if you see somebody, you're in Oklahoma City, and you see someone with uh, Wisconsin plates selling you a twenty eight hundred dollar necklace, you know, the first with a story about your girlfriend and whatever else, and you're just deny it's not the right deal for you. Say goodbye. It doesn't. It's amazing how right? people fall for it. It's amazing. Almost when they're in my area, whoever these people are, yeah. uh, man, we get uh, once or twice a week, somebody will come in that was taken by them. Um, right. Yeah. But if somebody comes to my shop, we always have to ask for identification because we have to report everything because everything's monitored. Of by course. And everything. But whenever we ask for an ID, if it's an out-of-state ID, oh, that, that gold is triple checked. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, when I got into this business, I learned literally every step. Uh, I sat with the trader. I sat in the, um, the melting department. I went into the, uh, the lab and I learned everything about this, the, the industry. And it was just intriguing. It was like acting to me, um, which is why I chose a career because nobody, when I used to walk around and go to lunch or whatever with my friends, they'd say, ah, we're attorneys, we're, we're becoming doctors, we're this. We're working for our family business. I'd say I'm an actor, and they'd say, "Wow, you know, like you're an anomaly." Mm -hmm. And when I was went into the gold refining business, um, especially you know, 21 years ago, nobody nobody was doing it. So that to me, as with my personality as a Gemini, I um, I always wanted to be a little bit of a standout, and I always wanted to be a little bit different than than everyone else. Maybe that's why I didn't go to law school. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm Other than smart enough. <laughs> I, I, that was my, I mean, I didn't go to law school because I chose that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> same reason. Uh, here, smart same reason. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have the same thing with being a pawn shop owner. You know, to sit around a table, everyone say the profession and the pawn shop owner. It's like, <laughs> that's different. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also, it's you know, cool, I, isn't it? It's definitely cool. Is the other side of it, though, where I've had people say, you don't know anything. You're a pawn shop guy. Like there's definitely a lack of respect at times as well. So it, it goes both ways. Yeah. Um, well, if they saw what you did on a daily basis, Michael, you know, with everything that you have to be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about all the forms that you have to fill out and everything you have to do with accounting and with your software and, and just knowing everything, not only just from servicing clients and being true to your, your customers, but actually, purchasing and um and payroll and everything else that you have to deal with I, i'm telling you i couldn't do it 
Right. It's I a much more it's a, it is a much it's a much more complicating business than a, just a retail store. I mean, it's, it, it truly is. I, I know. Hard, so, yeah, it's fun though. I love it. But back yeah. to gold refining. Can you walk through the process of gold refining? Like, sure. So, um, when my clients, uh, when a pawnbroker, for instance, sends me uh, gold, what we do at my facility is we check everything first. We give everything a spot check. We look to see if something sticks out. Is it silver? Is it platinum? Is it stainless? Is there something odd? Right. Um, Let me real quick. So what he's talking about is I will, people will come in and they'll get loans in their gold and they won't pick it up or they'll sell me gold. We'll put some of it out for sale, but then there's a lot of it that's just, we just don't think we'll be able to sell it or it's just in that condition to be sold. So we'll essentially put it in a big bag um, cut off the pieces we want to keep, maybe some of the diamonds and some other things, but we'll send them a bag of just broken or even real, you know, full pieces of, of gold. There's literally a bag of pieces of jewelry. So yeah. And especially at this, especially at this time, we see a lot of aged inventory. And what happens is, is that in a jewelry store or a pawn shop, something may not have sold or a group of, of pieces may not have sold for six months or a year. And at that point, the jeweler or the pawnbroker, whoever it is, wants to get their money back out of it so they can get it back out onto the street and get it um, working for them uh, because it's doing nothing sitting in a safe or, or in a, in a, uh, in a showcase. So um, that's where people like me come in. And um, so we test it and then we, uh, we melt it or process it depending on if it's a clean melt. And by clean melt, um, it doesn't have any diamonds for removal or, re or return. So the clean gold will go into a furnace, it'll, uh, it'll get melted and um, poured into a bar essentially. And um, during the melt, we actually take like a blood sample from it. So we take a tube sample directly from the molten uh, liquid and uh, we'll cut off a piece and that'll go into my, uh, my laboratory and we test it for uh, its purity. And that's how we pay our clients. So uh, if you've got 14 karat gold, it should be somewhere between about 56 and 58% pure. If it's all 14 karat uh, gold that's manufactured properly. And then we pay our clients for that less a little bit of a percentage and a small processing fee. And we move forward. Right. So what you're, you're talking about, like the 14 carats. So I don't know if people understand that like there's, there's different carat, 8 carat, 10 carat, 14 carat, 18 carat. Instead of 10 carats, sometimes you'll see 417 stamped on instead of 10 carat. And essentially that means it's 41.7% gold. Correct. So typical carat gold is made up of an alloy. It's not, not just gold unless it's 24 carat, in which case it's going to be really soft and it's not, it's not going to last very long. Um, 41% gold will have silver, will have copper, We'll have some nickel, possibly zinc, and um, that makes up 100%. So they always have to get to a number that's 100%, but 41% of that gold. So if you've got one ounce of gold and it's 41% gold, it's 0.4 ounces of gold out of that one ounce. The higher you go in your carrot, the softer the metal is going to be. Right. So you can't really make a, you can't make a ring 24 karat it's going to fall apart on no you, you wouldn't want it no it would be pretty but it, it would almost melt off your hand you know <laughs> right 
And we've definitely gotten awesome. definitely gotten pieces in that are stamped 10 carat and you test it and it's no, it's not 10. You can't tell exactly what it is, but it's six to eight or six to and, nine. And that's you know, you bring up an important point because a lot of my clients, if they base everything on plum gold, which is the 417, 58.575%. Um, if you base it on plum and it's not manufactured to that, where you have a 10 carat ring that's running eight carat, I'm always going to be off. The refiner always, it's the last person that touches that gold. Right. So, um, so even if the refiner who has an excellent reputation and a longstanding, uh, you know, career and has been around, my company has been around for 43 years with one of the best reputations in the United States. Even if we haven't done anything wrong, we're still the last person to touch that gold. And it, it, the onus is always on us, even though we haven't done anything wrong. I always tell people gold is like an M&M. You can't tell what's inside until you take a bite of it. So until we actually process it and assay it, to see how much pure gold is in that material. We don't know as a refiner just by looking at it, just like this thing. It's 18 karat, but there's no gold in it. So if we didn't x-ray it or assay it, we would just, we, we would be the ones who would have that, um, that on them. You know, we, we, would, we would be the ones that were, were crooks or, or not doing our business, our, our uh, our work correctly it takes a lot of trust building uh between it does yeah. and i and i have I, i'm very very fortunate that i that i am able to build trust with my clients and friends and i have clients um and friends from in states that i've never even met um that i'm the only guy that they trust in in, in my business and and i take that very seriously and i go to sleep with that very seriously um i don't take it for granted and that's probably one of the reasons why um i've built up uh, the kind of business and the, the name and reputation that I have, because I, I care more than the average bear. It's not just a, a nine to five for me. Right. You know, us pawnbrokers are very temperamental with our money. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what happens after the gold, after you melt it? So you put it in bars and then what happens to that? So after we take title to the material and, uh, and we pay our clients, um, that, that metal gets commingled into an even larger bar and that goes in for further refining. The cost of refining is, is expensive. So we can't just take a 10 ounce or a 50 ounce or an 80 ounce bar um, and process that separately. Once we own that material, then we commingle it. We know that a 54% uh, bar and a 53% bar and a 55% bar, it's going to average out. And we have all those you know, calculations of what we're looking for as well in our material that we now own, that we have paid for, that we have not gotten credit for. So that goes on for further refining. And, um, and then we take it back either in metal, we leave it on account to hedge against it or lock gold against it. Um, it really, uh, and then that metal from there goes back into the world as bullion, as um, gold grain for casting and manufacturing. It goes to the mints. Um, it goes into the industrial world. So it, it does get recycled. Um, it does get recycled. All right. Yeah. So it makes it all back back into uh, jewelry. That it does. For sale somewhere. It's, it's, it's a never ending cycle. It is because there's only so much gold and so much platinum and so much palladium and rhodium in, in the world. 
there is just only so much. Um, and the mining thing is beyond me, but uh, beyond my, uh, my pale. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, uh, Peter, for being here with me today. That was super interesting, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, I wish I could go back 20 years and be as motivated as you were. <laughs> I, I think you're doing okay. I, I, uh, I have uh, full faith that you're going to continue to do well. Yeah, it's um, look, it's an interesting business. It's uh, it's been good to me and my family, and it's been good to my my clients' families. And um, there's really nothing else that I would rather do. Uh, that's the God's honest truth. So um, it, it's it's well, a good I, place to be. I know you are one of the most respected ones in the industry, as far as the when you're at the conventions and the pond the pond industry goes. So um, always always like seeing your face there and chatting with you. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks again, Peter. And everyone out there, this is a Dweebs Global Production. They give free mentorship help, totally free, everything from resume writing to mental health, anything in between. Uh, they have over 500 mentors around the world. So we have support in every language, every country. Uh, so please, dweebsglobal.org.